Well, welcome back to our study of First John. Uh, we're going to be in First John two twenty-eight through chapter three, verse three this morning. First John two twenty-eight through three three, and the title of this sermon is "Confidence Before God." Today, we're going to be meditating on what seems to be a hinge text or a section that moves from one section of First John to another. And while there's not a clear-cut linear argument here in the same way that, say, Paul would write, there is a very, very clear theme. Uh, Ligon Duncan described this section as a one-point sermon with eight supporting arguments. So today we're going to look at John's one-point sermon and four out of those eight arguments. So what is John's main point? I believe it's this. Live righteous lives, pursue holiness in the here and now. He'll explain how to do this and why to do this. He'll also root his reasoning in one of the most important and precious truths that we have as Christians. Further, he'll explain how our future hope, which we've sang of in every single song this morning, He'll explain that, that our future hope affects our current way of life. Today's sermon is simple and to the point. Yet, if we really grasp it, it's life-changing. So let's dive into the text and allow God's word to speak to us. 1 John 2, 28-3-3. This is the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, this section of text seems to be a hinge or a parenthesis of some sort, both connecting what's previously been said, and looking forward to where John's about to go. He starts this section with the words, and now, which in context grammatically can be understood as, since this is so, or, or this being the case. He's saying, in light of everything that I've just written to you, so everything from chapter 1, verse 1, up to now, since these things are true, and what does he say? Since these things are true, abide in him. Abide in him. In who? In Jesus. Christians, little children, this is vital. Everything that's about to come after this command rests on this. Abide in Jesus. What does this mean? Well, 
To understand this, we've got to go to John chapter 15 again. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding means being plugged into Jesus, with him nourishing you and giving you life, being your source for everything. If we're not plugged in, if we're not abiding in Jesus, the true vine, number one, we'll never bear fruit. And two, we'll die, according to John 15, spiritually. That's the word picture that John paints in John 15. That Jesus is our source for life and fruitfulness. And that's the picture that John carries over here into our letter. He's alerting us to the fact that he's about to make a root and fruit argument. The challenges that he's about to give us will be impossible without being plugged into Jesus. Further, these challenges aren't what make us connected to Jesus. On the contrary, they're evidence that we are connected to Jesus. Uh, let me try to make this as simple and clear as possible. John is going to call us as Christians to holiness. But holiness only comes from abiding in Jesus. Holiness or moral living before God isn't what connects us to God. But holiness is a fruit that evidences we actually are connected to God. John wants us to understand that from the very beginning. Christian, abide in him. Let's keep going. Look again at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In life, we do things for various reasons, don't we? Sometimes at work, you might have financial incentives. Other times in life, you might have relational incentives to do something. Well, here, John is giving us a spiritual incentive for why we should abide and stay plugged in to Jesus. What does he say? Abide in him so that... When he, Jesus, appears. When he appears. Let's stop right there. What does John mean by appears? He's talking about the second coming of Christ. Again, the second coming that we've sang about this morning in every single song. We know that he's talking about the second coming because of this word that he uses at the end of the verse. His coming. Parousia. But 
what do we mean by Jesus' second coming? It's a crucial doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth. He became flesh, God incarnate. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life in every single way. He obeyed God's law, obeying his commands. He was 100% holy in every way. He died on a Roman cross to atone for the sins of his people. He was buried, but the grave couldn't hold him. Death and Satan had no claim on him. He rose victorious from the grave after three days. He appeared to women. He appeared to disciples. He appeared to a list of, of named people who could be verified as eyewitnesses. He appeared to thousands. He was a historical Jesus. All of this was Jesus' first coming. He existed eternally, but this first coming was his first coming to earth as the incarnate Son of God. Then we read in Acts chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, this. So when they had come together, they asked him, so these are his disciples, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you see that? So, at the end of Jesus' first coming, after dying and rising from the dead, he ascended to heaven in glory to sit at the right hand of the Father. And what did the angels say to those who watched this happen? He's coming again. He's going to come back. He'll come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. It'll be visible, not hidden. It'll be glorious, and it'll be authoritative. This teaching is all over the Bible. James Boyce writes this. He says, it has been observed by some that in the New Testament, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. It is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books, with the exception of Galatians, which deals with a particular doctrinal problem, in the very short books such as 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. Why point this out? Well, because we need to understand that this isn't a minor point of theology. It's a major one. Jesus came to this earth, he lived, died, and rose again, and he'll return. So, what will this return, his second coming, look like? Well, in Mark chapter 8, 38, after Peter's confession of the Christ, Jesus says this, Mark 8, 38, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 13, 24 through 27, Jesus says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. A couple verses later, starting in verse 32, Jesus says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Isn't that wild? Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So... He's coming again. He's going to come in power. It's going to be glorious. He'll be gathering his people from every part of the earth. And no one but the Father knows when it's going to happen. So be alert. Don't doze off at the wheel. That's Jesus. How about Paul? Look at how Paul talks about Jesus' second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So that's Jesus and Paul. What about John, the author of our book? John, in the book of Revelation, writes this. Revelation 1, 7 through 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 20, John writes these words. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. This is not a minor doctrine but a major one, a belief that has bearing on our everyday lives as Christians. So with all of that in mind, back to 1 John. Look what he's doing here. Verse 28 again. And now, little children, Christians, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see what he's saying? Christians, 
Keep plugged into Jesus. The only way you'll keep producing the fruit. Because he's coming back. And when he does, we will have confidence. This is a play on words, by the way. This word for confidence, parousia, sounds like the word for coming. Parousia. So John's saying Jesus is coming back and there's only two options. Confidence or shrinking back. My guess is that most of us have been in this kind of a situation. You're at your house and you're not expecting visitors. You have on your PJs, maybe socks and sandals. Your hair is all disheveled. For you men, maybe you haven't shaved or showered. You hear the knock on the door. Imagine that the unexpected visitor is your boss from work. Are you opening the door confidently? Or are you more likely to want to shrink away? I read a funny story about this this week. Apparently, when Dwight Eisenhower was president, he went on vacation in Denver, and there was this local kid there who was dying of cancer. Well, at some point or other, the boy had expressed that he would like to meet the president. Well, unannounced, Eisenhower pulls up in the presidential limousine to the boy's house. And the story goes that the boy's father came to the door in jeans, a t-shirt, and a day's worth of beard stubble. He stood face to face with the president of the United States. The father later exclaimed, what a way to meet the president. I want us to understand this. This word, parousia, or coming, it describes the coming of a king or a ruler with all of its pomp and circumstance and respect and honor. King Jesus, who's so much more important than the president of the United States, that king is coming again. And there's only two options. Either you'll meet him confidently, or you'll shrink back because you don't know him and you weren't ready. And let me be clear. If you don't know him, that day will be too late to make the decision. When he came the first time, it was on a donkey. But next time... It'll be on a war horse. He'll come in judgment. Now is the time to decide. Uh, let me read to you from the book of Revelation, a description of what it will be like for those on that day who are shrinking back. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? If you're not a Christian, if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, there is no time like the present. He's calling you to trust in him. Don't be caught shrinking back in shame at his coming. Instead, abide in him. 
Plug in. Allow him to produce fruit through you so that you might have confidence before him when he comes. So, the first argument that John makes is be plugged into Christ, producing fruit in your life, because he's coming back. But then, John shifts to another glorious point. Look again at verse 29. If you know that he, meaning Jesus, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. To be clear, this this if statement isn't one of maybe he is, maybe he isn't righteous. It could be translated since. So what's John saying? Since you know that he's righteous. Since you know that Christ is righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be morally pure, upright, and just with regard to Christ's standard or God's standard. It means to be holy. Look at how Paul uses this exact same word in Romans 7, verse 12. He says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So let's follow John's train of thought. Since we know that Jesus is righteous, morally pure, holy, obedient to God's commands, since we know that about Jesus, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Well, let's ask another question. What does it mean to be born of him? You remember John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus meeting Jesus at night. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born twice, once physically and once spiritually. You must be born again. And just like you didn't have any active involvement in your first birth, Jesus says you don't in your second birth either. It's a work of the Spirit. He blows where he wishes. Uh, Look at what John says in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Being born again is an act of God's sovereign grace to us. This, this whole process that we've been describing, being born again, is what theologians call regeneration. So generation would be the act of being born. So regeneration is the act of being born again. That's what John's talking about here in his letter. He's saying, Jesus is righteous. So those who are born of him practice righteousness. Think about it this way. When a baby's born, we typically say things like, they have their mom's eyes or they have their dad's smile. They bear the family resemblance. We were doing that with Neil and Sheree just this week, talking about Ethan. I'm not sure if any of you follow golf, but if you do, over the last year or so, you've seen videos of Charlie Woods, Tiger Woods' son. They've been playing tournaments together, and it's insane. They walk the same way. They swing the same way. They even twirl their club the same way when they hit a good shot. In press conferences, they, they hold their arms the same way. They even smirk the same way. They answer questions in the same way. It's abundantly clear that Charlie is Tiger's son, that he's been born of him. He bears the family resemblance. Do you see what John's saying? Jesus is righteous. Those born of him will practice righteousness and bear the family resemblance. And while he is thinking about this, John just gets excited about being a child of God. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In, in all of this talk of being born of God, John can't contain himself. I love this. The word translated see is typically used of excitement. Behold! It's like one of your kids who's overjoyed to show you something. My son Asher does this all the time. He'll build something with Legos or magnetiles, and, and he'll yell, Dad, come look at this! That's the feeling here. Christians, come look at this! Then this next phrase, he says, See, behold, come look! What kind? It's a Greek word that was used in port cities when onlookers were watching ships come in. They would look out onto the horizon discerning what kind of ships were coming in, what was on the sails, and they would say this word, patapos. What kind is it? Literally, from what country? That's the word that John uses here. Behold, look, come see from what country does this love come from. It's out of this world. And then notice what John says, this otherworldly love. He says, it's given. It's a gift. And the thing about gifts is you don't earn them. They're given freely. So what is this otherworldly, amazing gift that John's so pumped for us to see? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you're a Christian, you're not just called a child of God. You really are one. 
It's like the difference between going on vacation with one of your friends' families who, who says, you're kind of like a son or daughter to us. That's cool and all, but it's the difference between that and actually legally being in the family. Christian, you're not just called a child of God. You are a child of God. And that should blow our minds for several reasons. First, to know the love that God has for his children. God loves his children. Think about this. In, in a general way, God is loving toward everyone. He displays this first through delaying his wrath, which he would be completely just in pouring out on every human being. So he generally shows love through withholding wrath for a season. He also displays love generally for humankind through what we call general grace. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says, For he, meaning God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So in one way, God loves everyone. But he doesn't love everyone the way he loves his children. If you're a parent... You know how this works. Look, I, I love all of your children, but not the same way I love my children. I love my kids in a special and focused way. They have my heart uniquely. Christian, you are God's child, and he loves you. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, he loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. I love getting to read that to my kids every night, by the way. You are God's child, and he loves you. Second, being a child of God gives us eternal security. It doesn't matter what my kids do, they can never stop being my kids. Same with God. Because he's a good father, he'll never discard you as his child. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This truth is rooted in God's character. Once you're a child of God, once you've been born again, you can never be unchilded because of who God is. Christian, you're loved and you're secure. Come and see this. Behold this otherworldly love of the Father for his children. And I'm admittedly only scratching the surface here. I know I quoted him two weeks ago, but I highly recommend reading chapter 19 of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It's an entire chapter on the glories of having God as a father and us being his children. It's a truth worth meditating on and finding joy in. Very quickly before moving on, I just want to try to give us one of many, but one small implication from this truth and how it applies specifically to dating and marriage. If God is our father and we are his children, this has huge implications for dating and for marriage. How so? Well, if you're in a dating relationship, and you're a man, 
Do you realize that you're dating God's daughter? If that doesn't change how you treat her or how you think about her, it should. God cares how you take care of his little girl. Same thing in marriage. Husband, you're married to God's daughter. Wife, you're married to God's son. Consider that. Let it affect how you date and how you do marriage. God is our father. Let's keep going. John has just reminded us of one of the most glorious truths of our Christianity. But he also wants to sober us with the reality that being a child of God won't be easy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What's he saying? Same language as John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says he was in the world, meaning Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus, the fully divine Son of God, came to this earth and was rejected. They didn't applaud him or roll out the red carpet. No. Instead, they persecuted him and ultimately killed him. And look at these sobering words from Jesus. John chapter 15, 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You were, uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So, child of God, Christian, precisely because you bear the family name and resemblance, you will be hated by the world, just like your brother and master, Jesus. Speaking of myself here, I can so easily get in the mindset, especially in our, our current cultural and political climate, of woe is me. Why doesn't the world applaud our Christianity? Why don't they like our views on sexuality or even morality in general? Why don't they applaud us in that? world does not know God. They don't know you. They hated Christ, and they will hate you. But we're not victims here. Notice that, that Jesus never played the victim card. He just humbly and confidently did the will of his and our Father. The world doesn't know you because it didn't know him. Let's keep following John's argument. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So he's telling us what we are now, God's children. 
but he's moving the ball forward to the future, what we will be. And look what he says. In one sense, John's saying, we've got some yardage to cover. We're not yet what we will be. But when he appears, when he appears, again, John's talking about Jesus' second coming here. When Jesus comes again, look what's going to happen. We will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. What John seems to be communicating here is that by looking upon Christ at his return, we will be transformed completely into his image. We will perfectly reflect his character. This is what Christians throughout the ages have called the beatific vision or the blessed vision of Christ. It'll be a return to Eden. Follow the biblical storyline here. In Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Created in God's image. But what did man do? F.F. Bruce puts it perfectly. Regarding Genesis chapter 3, he says this. He says, Genesis 3 tells how man, not content with the true likeness of God, which was his by creation, grasped at the counterfeit likeness held out as the tempter's bait. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In consequence, things most unlike God manifested themselves in human life. Hatred, darkness, and death in place of love, light, and life. The image of God in man was sadly defaced. So, Genesis 1, the image of God created. Genesis 3, the image of God defaced. Sin, brokenness, darkness, death entered the world. But thank God, he wasn't done or defeated. He had a plan going forward. God was patient and gracious to his people. And in the fullness of time, he sent his only son, Jesus, the second and better Adam, into the world. Jesus, other than Adam and Eve, is the only human who has ever walked this earth who fully imaged God in an undefaced way. And through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, God's image is being restored. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, 29 through 30. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see that? What Paul and John are saying is this. When you become a Christian... You begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. But you're not there yet. But you will be. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Glorification is what John's talking about here in 1 John. To be fully made into Christ's likeness. The Christian life. 
is one of progressive and continual sanctification or growth. Each day, each moment, every event of your life is being used by God to make you more like Jesus. And yes, this includes suffering and hardship and even persecution. God uses suffering as a tool in his gracious and loving hand to grow us more into his image. He uses people to mold us more into his image. He uses his word to mold us more into his image. He uses every tool at his disposal to grow us more into his likeness. Friends, he's doing that right now. But one day, one day, we'll look on Jesus at his second coming and we'll be completely transformed perfectly in an instant into his image. That's what John's saying here. Jonathan Edwards, speaking to this truth, he said this, just really succinctly. He said, grace is glory begun, and glory is grace completed. I love that. If this sounds too good to be true, you're not alone in thinking that. Uh, William Alexander tells this story that uh, when native converts came to this phrase in Scripture, as they were translating the Bible into their language, they laid down their pens and they exclaimed, No, this is too much. Let us write instead that we shall be permitted to kiss his feet when we see him. But it's not too good to be true. Brothers and sisters, it is true. When we see him, we will be like him. And this brings us to John's final point for today. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John has told us what we are now, God's children. He's told us what we will be, like Christ in his character. But this future hope, this future hope that we look forward to, it isn't a head in the clouds, pie in the sky hope. No. It's a hope that affects our present reality. John is saying to us, Christian, if you, if you have that hope of one day being perfectly righteous when you look on Christ, if you have that, it should lead you to purifying yourself now. John has been realistic and honest with us with regard to sin throughout this book. He's told us that, that Christians won't be sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. In fact, John has told us that anyone who claims that is a liar. But true children of God will pursue purity as Christ is pure. They will pursue joyfully holiness. And here we come full circle to where we started. Children of God will bear the family resemblance in holiness. And how do we do that? Try harder? No. Abide in him. Abide in him. Christians, this is our hope. This is our prayer. That we as God's children will increasingly look like Jesus. 
with the knowledge that one day we, we fully will. And on that day, when he comes, we'll stand before him confident. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray.